Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, and on the show, I interview students and professors at Santa Clara University to learn about their life stories and what they've learned from those experiences. And today, I'm delighted to be talking with English professor Simone Billings. Dr. Billings has taught writing courses at Santa Clara since 1980, and she has a fascinating family background, teaching experiences abroad, and has served on numerous committees and teams at Santa Clara in addition to publishing dozens of papers and co-authoring a writing textbook. That's about all I got for an introduction, so let's roll the tape. I'd like to welcome Dr. Simone Billings to the podcast, and I would love it if you could start out by talking a little bit about your childhood and your family and what experiences you had growing up. Okay. I'm uh, born and raised San Franciscan and still basically live up there. I was the first born in the United States to parents from two different countries, and it was fortuitous that they chose to live in San Francisco since it did not have miscegenation laws and their marriage was um, seen as legal because had they settled in certain other states immediately after the war, um, approximately after the war, uh, then their marriage wouldn't have been legalized. Um, That San Francisco being a multicultural uh, place, uh, they and my sisters and I were not anomalies insofar as being um, mixed, that we are blends. My father is originally from Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and my mother is originally from Japan. Um, Went to a Japanese mission school in San Francisco where you had to be Asian and or Catholic to attend the school for private school. Then high school was Presentation High School. And I remember my childhood being very interesting because of going from having primarily Asian fellow students and then going to another private school which had um, more of a mix of whoever else was in San Francisco. And so some of us were noticing differences and weren't aware that, oh, um, not everyone is Asian because that's primarily with whom we were associating. And it was a good childhood. I remember going over, I never played with dolls so much as I played with um, the guys and was playing um, with the train set at Larry's house afterwards, for instance, or playing pickup basketball with them. And I know that my siblings, um, there's a big space between me and my younger sisters. My older sister and I are four years apart. My younger sisters from me are 10 and 14 years. And so it's like two separate growing up experiences. In one case, I was the youngest and was able just to hang out and be a kid um, who had no other cares other than playing sports, doing well in school, to the um, suddenly older sibling who was taking care of the younger ones. But it was a great experience because San Francisco is such a terrific place to grow up in. Mm -hmm. 
Were there any moments or experiences before college that made an impact on you in some way? Before college, yes, definitely, because uh, one of the things that happened between being in um, Catholic um, elementary school and going to Catholic um, high school is that my father chose to take a position uh, for the armed services working in Japan for a year. So we ended up going to Japan. It was a way for him to be able to help my mother see her mother um, and the whole family. And I would say that was quite a life-changing experience in part because my high school teacher at Tachikawa Air Force Base, um, I still remember his name, Robert Christian Peters, English. I wanted to be just like him. That's when I determined that I wanted to go into teaching English. And then you stayed in San Francisco for college, going to San Francisco State. So were there any moments or experiences in college that you still remember as being impactful? Certain experiences in my undergraduate um, career stand out um, at San Francisco State. One of them is that two of the stupidest people in San Francisco sat next to each other in uh, class because I was an English major, but PE, physical education, and Latin were my minors. For the Latin minor, then we had to take a class in the Roman religions and various things like that. And this one woman was not getting next to, who sat next to me was not getting any of the references that the instructor kept making to Christianity, Catholicism, sorts of things. And she looked at me and was saying, I don't get this. And I you know I looked back at her and I said, what? You know, and I explained it to her and I said, aren't you Catholic? And she looked at me and she said, no, aren't you Jewish? And so that's how isolated we tended to be, some of us. Um, and uh, the realization suddenly that you'd read about these people of other faiths or from other places, but you just accepted that everyone was like it. I think that many Santa Clara students have that experience their first year as well. Um, suddenly realizing, oh, not everyone owns guns or not everyone doesn't own guns or things like that. So that was on the undergraduate level. And on the graduate level, probably the thing that changed me was uh, first of all, I was an instant sophomore when I went to uh, university because I took a test and got uh, my general ed waived by the test. And so I began graduate school early um, just because everybody else was t taking this particular class and there was a companion one and going to grad school, so I decided what the heck. Both my BA and MA are in English literature. Uh, for the MA, I also have an emphasis on uh, the... Uh, teaching of reading and writing on the university level. And the instructor for that course, um, I found out only by taking this course that sounded interesting. Oh, there's a companion course, taking that next one. Oh, there's this job I can apply for as well. And But he's the one who really did cement the love of um, teaching on the university level. Before that, on the high school level, um, like a lot of high school students, I was thinking, oh yes, I'll go back to my high school and teach there. But then that's what suddenly made me realize, okay, maybe it is going to be good to teach on the university level. Did you ever doubt that you wanted to be a teacher and study English, or were you always set on English as a career? I was sort of focused on English in part because I think since English was the language my parents had in common, and that's all I ever heard, 
then I was always used to having to help them with their English. And even in grammar school, because some of my classmates, um, they spoke another language at home, Japanese usually, but sometimes Chinese, sometimes Tagalog, that um, I had been asked since the sixth grade to help fellow students out with their English. And I like English. I like literature. I like writing. Um, I like teaching these things. And then a lot of times English has a reputation of being a, quote, useless major or not having great job prospects after college. So what would you tell someone who loves English but isn't sure if they want to pursue it as their major in college? I would probably say that no matter what a student pursues as a BA, on if they're studying just for the BA, that most likely that's not going to get them a job so readily uh, because they're going to have to go on for an advanced degree. That one reason why, however, we think of, well, accounting, there's a good major, is that we have a term accountant that goes along with it. Um, that English, however, and no one's ever said, oh, no, please don't give me anybody, um, you know, please don't come here with good writing skills. Um, that I know from taking the train from Saint, uh, um to Santa Clara uh, since I've been teaching here that I've talked to VPs of engineering firms and they all say teach them to write clear concise direct prose tell them to stop trying to make it flowery tell them to that we're looking for people who can write well and these are people who are vice presidents of engineering companies um, that the advantage to any degree in the humanities whether it's art history, whether it's anthropology, whether it's um, English, is that it does train you to do anything just about. Because most fields, even those which are more mathematically oriented, require good writing. I know that an ex-student of mine who uh, was double major between English and uh, accounting worked for an accounting firm in downtown San Jose and brought me in to do noontime workshops there because um, he said his staff couldn't write well and they have to write reports. Uh, he especially wanted me to hammer home things like parallel structure. So the grammar things, which I happen to be good at because of that undergraduate minor in Latin, taking Latin for seven years. English grammar is predicated upon Latin grammar actually. Mm. So it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. And then how did you end up teaching at Santa Clara University? I think that even though it's something that lots of people want to have wonderful answers, uh, that real calling and everything like that, and it is a calling to teach, they happen to offer me the full-time job. And that's what you'll get from a lot of faculty because getting a university position full-time is very difficult. And I feel blessed that it happened to be in the Bay Area. I went from teaching at San Francisco State part-time, teaching at USF part-time, saw that there was a part-time position at Santa Clara, applied for it, I came down to interview, and was told, oh no, that position's already gone, but we'll keep your name in the hopper. And then they had a national search for a full-time position. And in response, I called up and they said, oh yeah, your name's in the hopper, you don't have to do anything else. So that was back in the mom and pop days of Santa Clara. And so later on, I did get a call to come down and interview, was walked through various people's offices, and another person and I happened to be the results of that national search that year, um, Fred White, 
as his name. He's retired now. But he and I began teaching. They didn't have to do much more than interview us. At the end of the day, they could tell us we had it because that was the mom and pop days of Santa Clara. Mm -hmm. And then do you have any funny stories from the first couple years teaching or are there any major ways that the university has changed? I know that there were changes that some students, I'm sure, are aware of who look at things historically um, and see that one of the... Um, I was going to say dorms, we're supposed to refer to them as residence halls now, but that back then they were dorms, and, at, and one of the dorms had a bar um, in the basement, for instance, that some students may know about. And I know that one of my colleagues who's retired now, he had been one of the people who said, oh, Simone, why don't you go and to volunteer, or they're looking for volunteers to be um, judges for the gong show they were doing. And so he said, well, uh, I can't do it. Uh, is it okay if I give your name over there? So I said, well, sure. So I showed up and yes, people were drinking beer and everything there, but they were legal. They were the sorts of things they were always carting. However, he did not warn me that if they disagreed with what the judges said, that they threw their beer on us. Uh -huh. Yes. And so we faculty judges were on a bit of a diet and that suddenly they were throwing beer on us. And fortunately, I changed out of teacher clothes into clothes that could be washed and dried, not only um, taken to the cleaners, because I went home smelling like beer that night. And so I don't think that any student today would think that would be appropriate behavior, hmm. at least none of the ones I encountered. And then I'm also wondering about some of your teaching experiences abroad. So could you maybe talk a little bit about your trip for the Fulbright Scholarship that you did in 2009 and what you learned from that experience? Okay. That when it comes to that Fulbright, once again, I'm blessed. I have to acknowledge, I think that the seed for it was planted when prior to that in 2005, so 2005, one of the women with whom I had been in doctoral program at Stanford, and she taught linguistics for us for a year before going, uh, returning to Barbados to work at the university there. Um, she remembered that I had a reputation as a good instructor. And so she wanted me to run a teacher training workshop back in 2005 to help them revamp their writing program because 50% of the students were failing and the instructors were blaming the students. And so I did go in 2005 to do this teacher training workshop for a week that um, she was the dean of the faculties of humanities and education that she brought me in for a week. When I decided to apply for a Fulbright, then I contacted her again to see, well, do you need my services? She had been working her way up the ranks and was the first woman president of one of the campuses of the University of the West Indies, the open campus, which is online education. She asked that I work for her there and run teacher training workshops again for different sites of the open campus. And so what I did was facilitate teacher training workshops on several different islands, whether it's a, because those were the sites of the open campus. The fact that there isn't a bricks and mortar campus of the University of the West Indies in St. Lucia, for example, should not preclude that, that an individual couldn't get a degree from the University of the West Indies. They have a bricks and mortar in Jamaica and Trinidad, Tobago, and in Barbados. I was in Barbados 
and but I went to St. Lucia, Antigua, um, St. Kitts, and Grenada, as well as doing a workshop in um, Barbados. And one of the things that struck me, um, humbled me, was the fact that in some cases I was the first U.S. citizen they were really talking to, not in a service personnel way that somebody in a hotel might or somebody on a beach might, but that I was sitting and having conversations with these people in my workshop, with the people who, who uh, um assisting me in my work, and it humbled me greatly. I remember being grateful for having a private driver on each of the islands I went to to get to and from the um, hotel where they put me up to the site. And kidding my gang when I came back, Father uh, President, about I had a private driver there and he said, don't get used to it <laughs> when I returned because um, I also know that I was just saying to some students today about how it was so limited sometimes what things the people were um, able to have at, and news and whatever because small islands, we're talking about an island, uh, St. Barbados, which is like 14 miles by 11 miles and yet it takes an hour to get from the north to the south because there's just the one circular uh, road. But how on some of the islands, I was on the good morning programs like Good Morning America except it's Good Morning Bar Buddha, God good morning, wherever, a teacher training workshop. And I know that it was a 20-minute segment. It shows how slow the news is and how that's so much of a big deal. But as one of the locals in Barbados said, um, this is a big deal that you're doing for our, our people, being able to come and to help them to see ways uh, to assist uh, students to get better in writing. They worked primarily most of the places on the British model, which is to read it. And then, for instance, when I was workshopping, having them do mock conferences on a student paper, that the instructor, you've been a student in writing classes, and I don't know about you, but this person was saying, now, when you do this, I don't like when you write it this way. And I was saying, excuse me, but, Usually, if you tell somebody that directly and in that tone of voice, I don't like, they're going to stop listening to you. What is it about it? And so things such as that, or being able to help them to see different ways of responding to student papers rather than just F, but telling them maybe, here's what worked well, here's where you could improve, here's how you can improve it, here's an example of what you can do. Why don't we workshop these things? And so a variety of practices that are just considered de rigueur for us in the U.S. are not considered a common practice in the U.K. system, where it is more, I will mark the paper, give it back to you with a grade. You don't do any revising almost. Uh, you just turn in the next paper. And so there isn't the idea that we just have growing up here in the States. So those are among some of the things that I know that I think that I was surprised by as well as benefited from. Mm -hmm. I also know that when it came to the Fulbright um, living abroad, I lived abroad somewhat before when I was teaching in the Santa Clara summer program that it used to have with Durham 
um, University of Northern England. And so we would be living one week in London and then five weeks up in Durham. But this was actually living five and a half, six months in a country that is more akin to the South or to the 1950s in the way that it behaves towards women sometimes. Um, and always calling people sweetie, whether or not you know them. And men or female say sweetie to each other, which here in the States at that point, we would not go for it all, at least not the Northerners. So you mentioned that that university used a lot of online courses. And in the last 10 years, we've seen uh, the rise of a lot of online learning, and that's led some people to question the value of traditional colleges like Santa Clara that are so, so expensive. So what do you see in the next 10 years in terms of uh, the growth in online education and what that means for universities like Santa Clara? Well, for a place like the Caribbean, for a place like many other countries where they don't have as many um, schools of higher education, online makes a lot of sense because they physically sometimes cannot get to an actual bricks and mortar school. I think that online makes sense for Santa Clara in some ways also because remember we have more than just an undergraduate population here. Not only that, but even when it comes to the undergraduate population, we have summer school and not everyone is local. And so if a person is able to take those um, some of their courses online, that's great. And to tell you the truth, I have taught online courses as well as hybrid courses for undergraduates and it is, in both cases, more work for the faculty member. I would maintain, at least for a faculty member who teaches writing as I do. However, I can see the benefits to the students because I was just at a workshop where we were talking about online teaching, and for the students who are, during the summer, still wanting to stay on track, if they are going to be traveling, somebody is just playing on vacation in Mexico, but somebody else for work is back home in St. Louis, they can still take a course and do it, uh, that the learning still happens. I think that it's a bad thing for lower division classes when students are just making the adjustment to university life, but I think that for upper division students as well as for graduate students, online education could be quite beneficial. And do you think it'll replace major universities at all? I don't think it'll fully replace major universities, if by major universities you mean those which also have the sorts of extras, because all you need really for a university, in my view, um, are the faculty and the students. However, major universities tend to have student services, they tend to have athletic programs, they tend to have athletic facilities, they tend to have student clubs, there are career centers, there are so much more that a major university would have that purely online would not suffice. And then I'd also like to talk a little bit about your research projects and publications, and I'm wondering if there are any specific projects that stand out to you because you learned something especially interesting or the results surprised you in some way? Instead of a paper, can I talk about the argumentation textbook? Yeah, okay. sure, sure. Because the argumentation textbook, quite frankly, somewhat surprises me. And it surprises me for a couple of reasons. One is that 
it is presently in the sixth edition. And that surprises me because there are lots of argumentation textbooks out there. It surprises me when it comes to the fact that we do not, my co-author Fred White and I, say, oh, please, can we have another edition? But our publishers are the ones who tell us, oh, you know, it's selling well enough, but let's have another edition come out now. It surprises me because it was an interesting split between Fred and me, given that he was not as tech-savvy. He wanted me to do certain things. Also, I have more connections with students oftentimes, and one of its hallmarks is, and it still is its major hallmark in the um, industry, is that it has student essays. Right now, a couple of students whom I taught in their first-year writing class, they're presently seniors, they are published in this book. And so from the time they were sophomores, they could say that they were published authors because example student essays are in every part of it. And just yesterday I was emailing a congratulations to one of the people um, at the publishers saying, oh, I see that you're celebrating a work anniversary and she emailed back, yes, thanks. But she said, by the way, do you have any student essays for this online thing we're doing? We want to have some student essays that show appropriate MLA or APA format. They don't have to be argument essays. We can pay them a short, uh, little stipend and stuff that I love showcasing the Santa Clara students and I love showcasing students, period, because that's what education is all about, in my view. What would you say up to this point in your career that you are most proud of? Always a difficult question. In applying for the Fulbright, you have to say what are the five um, things that um, you consider to be your major accomplishments. And it's always hard, as it should be, um, if one is old and has done junk, that there should be many accomplishments, in my view. I know that I would think that an accomplishment, professional accomplishment, most likely would be the Fulbright um, that I would be most proud of, in part because subsequent to that, I was one of the people who was evaluating um, Fulbright applications from U.S. scholars who wanted to go elsewhere. And it's like sitting on a committee presently. Um, I'm not on one presently, but I have been in the past. Um, it's like sitting on some committee and uh, that's interviewing and going to be winnowing down for a faculty position. Same thing happens with the Fulbright. Oh my goodness, how did I ever get this? Oh my goodness, how did I ever get hired? Because you see so many good things coming across. And it's a crapshoot quite frankly, um, whether or not your gifts, your skill set matches whatever the needs are. So the Fulbright in part, a major accomplishment also could be um, various teaching awards and things, but um, that's um, anybody at this stage most likely would have these. Frankly, I think it's dumb that the thing that occurs to me I know doesn't oftentimes get seen as a major accomplishment. Professionally, I think one of the accomplishments that I'm most proud, that pleases me the most, is their lasting relationship with the students. Because I know that I have in my drafts an email back to an ex-student of mine who graduated in 84 or 85 from here because he married an English major and 
We somewhat keep in touch. I know that some other students I just heard from this past weekend in the uh, graduated in the early um, 2000s that he needed another letter of rec for graduate school. He's going back um, for a yet another degree. But the fact that we can keep touch that way. And when I'm going to a place for a conference like Minneapolis, I just emailed somebody I know who also graduated in the 80s and letting her know I'm going to be there again because they actually still want to talk to me sometimes. And I have just last month gone to an ex-student's wedding. And I think that the relationships, because in part, isn't that why people pay the big bucks to come to Santa Clara? That it, it does have to do with smaller class size and that you can build relationships with people. And the people I'm mentioning, a number of them are ones that I've worked with on research projects or things like that, or in student organizations. And so there was a professional basis to begin with, but they're human beings, they're adults. You begin to develop relationships and to keep touch with them. And you know they're kids or um, in some cases, teach them or whatever. Well, awesome. I would love to wrap up with a couple shorter questions. So to start out, what advice would you give to a first-year student starting college? Breathe, because people get too stressed out about things. I would also say um, to be sure to be kind, because we hurt enough people unintentionally that to go out of one's way to hurt another intentionally just seems superfluous. What is your favorite place that you've traveled? Greece. I love the Greek islands. Um, I would go back to the Greek islands in a heartbeat. And I've been there, um, there three times to Greece, minimum three times, but uh, I still haven't seen all of Crete. I have not walked the Samaria Gorge. Hmm. If you had to stop being an English professor and start a totally different job, what job would you want to try out? I would bake. I mean, I bake for my classes occasionally. I bake biscotti or brownies and things. So I would uh, bake. Are there any books every college student should read? I think everybody should read The Tragedies of Shakespeare. And so that's not a book but plays, they aren't that long, um, sort of thing. I think they ought to read that in part because um, whether it's, it, it's not Middle English as is Chaucer, that would have been my other choice, but um, you have to read um, things that really do show from somebody who can write from both a man's and a woman's perspective as Shakespeare could do, as Tennessee Williams could do. I think that to read the tragedies, one would be able to see not just excellent writing, but also um, what are the uh, human flaws that we need to watch for. And for the same reason, some of the Tennessee Williams plays that show the importance of kindness. If you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? Show empathy. Because... Even when it comes to something so local as road rage, somebody cut me off, or uh, somebody I made an appointment to come in to talk to the class isn't here. You never know what's happening with someone else. That I was just speaking with my younger sister earlier today, and she said she may put on makeup, she may um, have a smile on her face, but nobody knows, after all, how depressed she sometimes is. And she's on meds for 
um, the PP, uh, TSD that she suffers from, things like that. That the whole idea of not assuming the worst of everybody, as often people tend to do, but to assume, I don't understand why you just treated me meanly, but I'm going to be kind in return. And finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? Sleeping in, jogging with the dog um, along the coast, and possibly um, just uh, relaxing, watching TV with the hub, going to Stanford football game because we're season ticket holders, and so working in a, a football game. Gosh, well, thank you so much for doing this interview. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I feel honored to have been asked. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. You can subscribe to Voices of Santa Clara on the iTunes podcast app. You can visit VoicesOfSantaClara.com for interview transcripts, and you can like the Facebook page. Special thanks to Miles Elliott for the music. Thank you for listening, and have a nice day.